Now, before we dive into the uh, Bible this morning, I want to ask you a question. If I were to take a poll of the room and I were to ask what some of the greatest innovations of the 21st century are, what are the kinds of things that you think I might hear from the room? Smartphone. Anybody vote for smartphone? That's pretty cool. Anybody seen, whoa, this is uneven. Better watch out. Can't walk around back here. Um, anybody seen the, uh, the SpaceX rockets that will literally launch something into orbit and then land themselves on a ship in the middle of the ocean? That one's pretty cool. I got to admit, that's pretty cool. How about Bluetooth everything? Everything that you could possibly imagine to connect, you can connect with Bluetooth. Parents, continuous play feature on Netflix. Anybody? Amen? Beautiful. I'm going to throw one out there that I think gets majorly taken for granted, the confirmation email. Think about it. If you've ever ordered anything online, which especially during coronavirus means everything that you do in life is done online, how do you actually know that the stuff that you placed an order for is going to show up at your house? The confirmation email. How do you know that you actually paid for it and that it's coming? The confirmation email. If you buy tickets for a concert, how do you know that you're actually going to get into the concert? The confirmation email, right? If you make a reservation for a flight, if you put in an order for grocery pickup, if you register your kids for a sports team, how do you know that everything went through as promised and you're not going to be stuck missing out? The confirmation email. I was reminded of the benefits of the confirmation email last month when Sheridan and I finally booked a last-minute baby moon, and we're very excited about our trip. And about a week later, I'm just kind of going through all the details, making sure that everything is lined out. And I'm sitting there going, man, I thought I was supposed to get a confirmation from the hotel, and uh, something's not really lining up here. You already know where this is going, right? And so I call the place up, and I get someone at the front desk on the phone, and, you know, you're just trying to be overly polite. Hey, how are you doing today? Great to talk with you. Hey, listen, here's the deal. Here's my name. And, uh, yeah, we should, have a, we should have a stay in the, uh, in the system for this day to this day. And uh, I hear the dreaded words that uh, I imagine that you already are anticipating. Sir, uh, there's no record of your stay in our system. Well, let me tell you what. I'm sitting in my gym shorts at home, and I know you do this every day for a living, but I'm pretty sure you're not trying hard enough because... Me and my opinions clearly are in the right here. Now, of course, there wasn't anything in the system, and we go back and we look at what it would look like to rebook at that point, and the rooms we want are gone, and the price is through the roof, and so we're back at the drawing board. If you've ever been traveling and your plans fall through at the last minute, that's a special kind of stress. If you've ever had that happen to you, you know what I'm talking about. See, the confirmation email is great because it helps people be able to enjoy baby moons with their spouse, but it also is great for us as people because we really do like to have a sense of what lies ahead. We like to have assurance about what's coming up in the future as people, not just with regard to whether our groceries are going to be at the grocery store. In life, we like to know that the things that we plan, the things that we expect to occur will actually take place because as people, there is security right, in getting reassurance that things are really going to happen. And so as we come to Genesis 15 this morning, we're going to see a very similar dynamic. God has made promises to Abram. 
great promises that if they're true, are going to bring amazing blessing into his life. But Abram is thinking what I think many of us as humans would think, which is, hey, God, I, I know you said these things to me, right? And I've been, I've been living my life based off of what you said. Remember, I, I left Ur, the Chaldeans, and I walked a long way through the desert, this other place, and, and I'm, I'm here in this land. I'm living my life based off those things. But there's some things that you've said that haven't happened yet. And, and I trust you here, but is it possible for me to have a little bit, a little bit of assurance that this stuff is actually going to happen. I'd like a confirmation email, Lord, on these couple of things, if you don't mind. And so let's turn our attention toward this exchange in Genesis 15 this morning and see how God chooses to respond to Abram's request. Read with me, starting in verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Let's stop there. So right off the bat, we get this statement. It says, after these things. This is a good opportunity. Learning about the Bible here, this is a good opportunity. When you see that in the text, your immediate thought should be, okay, what are these things referring to? And so we go back in the Bible to answer that. And so in the last chapter of Genesis, basically 30,000 foot view, what happens is there are these kings of people that are living in the land of Canaan, and they're fighting against each other. There's nine kings, and they go to battle with each other. Four line up on one side, and five line up on the other. And in the process of them fighting, Abram's nephew, Lot, who we've heard about before in Genesis, he went with him from Ur of the Chaldeans. He goes all the way over to the promised land. In chapter 13, Abram and Lot kind of get into a little bit of a hey, I'm not really sure that there's enough space here for the two of us. And Abram says, okay, well, why don't you go your way and I'll go mine. And so Lot decides that he wants to go and settle in the Jordan Valley in these fertile lands that are watered by the the Jordan River. And so Lot is over there, minding his own business, doing his thing. And then this battle starts. And Lot and all of his stuff and all of his people get caught up in the battle and they get captured. And so Abram who's in his late 70s at this point, gathers all the trained men from his household and he pursues Lot's captors and he overthrows them in battle and they get Lot and all of the possessions from Lot's household and all of his people back plus plunder from the battle. It's pretty spry for an old guy at 70. I bet he did CrossFit. So here are the things that happen. That's what happens, okay? But what else does it say? It says, the Lord came to Abram in a vision after these things, and it said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Now, that would be incredibly comforting, would it not? If you're Abram, put yourself in his position. He's 70 years old. He's got a a wife who is of similar age. He's amassed all of this stuff. He doesn't really have a place to call his home, and there's a bunch of young kings who were bloodthirsty, who were fighting against one another, and he's caught in the midst of it. Yeah, he may have won the last battle. He may have gone to these guys tired from battle, tired from fighting, been able to overthrow them and get Lot back, but that would be pretty comforting for the Lord to show up and say, hey, guess what, Abram? I'm in front of you to protect you. I'm your shield. Your reward will be great. 
Now, I can't speak for you this morning, but if God came to me in a vision and said that my reward would be great, that would be pretty encouraging. But what is Abram's response? What is Abram's response to all that has just happened? What is Abram's response to the fact that the Lord has shown up and said, I will be your shield and I will give you a great reward? Let's see what his response is in verses 2 and 3. It says, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. This is a man who has abundant riches. He's amassed for himself through his lifetime servants and livestock and riches and goods all throughout his life. He'd just gone to battle and brought home plunder, and the Lord is promising him yet even more reward. And yet, what do we see is the desire of Abram's heart. What does Abram really want? The implication of his statement in verse 2 is, Lord, what could you give me that would possibly be of greater value than to have a child? I have what I need. You've provided for my earthly needs and given me great wealth, above and beyond what I could have possibly imagined. But as it stands, I don't have a child. And this man, Eliezer over here, he's going to be my heir. Now keep in mind, what has the Lord told Abram thus far? In Genesis 12, he said, Abram, I'm going to make of you a great nation. What is a nation? It is a group of people. He's told him in, verse, in, in Genesis 13, he says, Abram, your offspring are going to be like the, gra- the grains of sand, the grains of dust upon the earth. So these are the things that God has told him, but Abram is sitting here today and he's saying, I am a man who has been told that I will have offspring, and yet this guy who is not my son will gain everything that I have. I've yet to see what you've promised me come to pass. Now, it was a big deal in that culture of that day if you were childless. You don't think about that a lot today, but, but in that day, it was a big, big deal. If you didn't have a child, if you were a woman, it was a sign of absolute disgrace. And if you were a man, it was a sign that you were a failure. doesn't matter how much stuff you've got. You are a failure as a man if you don't have an heir and have a child. In fact, it was so important that often what you would do if you could not have a child is you would buy someone to become your heir. It's possible that that's what happened with Eliezer, that they said, well, we're 70, we're probably not having kids, and we've got to leave this to somebody, so I'm going to buy this person who will care for me in my old age, and as a reward, will get all of my stuff. But it's, it's, it's an important matter to pass along the riches to your heir. And then you add to that all the promises that the Lord has given to Abram here and to his offspring, and there's much to be gained. That isn't lost on Abram in this request. That isn't lost on Abram as he looks at what the Lord could possibly give him and surveys everything he's amassed and says, you know what? What I really want is just to see what you've promised me come to pass. 
I don't have a child. I don't have an heir. Interestingly, and don't miss the significance of this, that a lot of the language used here around inheritance and the importance of inheritance is applied to us as believers in Christ, right? That we are heirs with Christ and that we are heirs of the promise, that the great riches and the benefits of God the Father that He affords to us through Christ become ours because we are heirs. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says this. It says, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Don't miss that in the midst of all of this. There's other things that we're going to see here today that, that we'll pull out as well, and we'll expand on this more later, but, but Abram's response to, to God's communication, his vision to him saying, your reward will be great, I'm your shield. Abram's response is to say, Lord, what will you give me of value that is greater than that of a child, because I have not seen that come to pass. Church, at at first brush through this, we may not immediately see this, but I want to point out something here for us. This is a pivotal moment in Abram's life. This moment of silence between God showing up and reminding Abram that he is with him And Abram's response back to God, waiting for God to communicate back to him. This is a pivotal moment in Abram's life. It's one of the defining moments in Scripture. This is one of the moments where the deepest desire of the heart is laid before the one who can do all things in his power. And so Abram has lobbed this desire in the Lord's lap, and and let's see now how God Response. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. The Hebrew says, One from your loins will be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Don't miss, don't miss the intentionality and the purposefulness of God in leading you to understand his will. He's not hiding it from you. He's not waiting for you to find it. He will lead you in his timing. Notice what it says. It says the Lord brought Abram outside. What a beautiful picture of the heart of God in the moment of this man laying himself bare before the Lord. What a beautiful picture of the fatherly heart of God to take this man. Because he could have criticized him, couldn't he? Hey, Abram, I've done all of this stuff for you. Why are you doubting me? Why are you questioning? Do you not believe that I can do this for you? I think sometimes as believers, We have an attitude toward God that that we liken ourselves to being an annoying kid who just keeps asking over and over and over and over again, and God is finally like, stop, I heard you. We have this image of God that he's up there just annoyed with us sometimes, but the fatherly heart of God is to look at Abram and to say, hey, 
Come with me. Let's go outside. I want to show you something. So the Lord brings him outside and says, Look at the heavens, Abram. Count the stars if you can. I know you don't have a child to call your own right now, but I will not only give you what I have promised, I will exceed what your mind has the ability to comprehend. And Abram believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. Now, I know living in Houston, Texas, it's not much when you go outside and look at the night sky, right? It's real hard to appreciate what's going on here. There have been just a, a couple key moments in my life, key opportunities where I've had an opportunity to get away from the city and get away from lights and be high up in the mountains in areas of the United States where there is no light pollution, none at all. You look up at the sky and you see the Milky Way and it's so dense with stars you can't even tell them apart. And you sit there and you look at it and you just feel how small and insignificant you are and how your problems and your worries and your your frustrations and your concerns are just meaningless compared to the vastness of being able to see what an infinite God is able to create. And I imagine what that must have been like for Abram to be brought outside and, and to be told, hey, I know you've looked at the sky day after day after day, but there's a new meaning to this for you. There's a new meaning to this for you. This is how I will fulfill my promise to you. But think, hear me, don't miss this, but to think that the offspring like stars in the night sky is the most mind-blowing part of this passage would be to miss the true majesty of what's going on here. That's cool, but verse six is even better. It says, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord. Abram believed the Lord. He didn't place his faith in the promise of offspring. Abram places his faith in the person of God. That's the first and most critical thing I want us to see in this passage this morning. This is a statement that in Abram's heart, as he looks at the night sky, he doesn't sit back and go, man, that's going to be cool to have a legacy of offspring like that. He looks at the night sky and he says, God, you are trustworthy. You're powerful. You're able to do everything that you say that you can do and more. I believe you. It doesn't matter what happens from this point. I'll never see my offspring ever amount to the number of stars in the sky, but you can do it. I believe you. He doesn't look at the sky and go, well, I'm not really sure how that's going to happen because I'm, I'm 70, but, you know, we'll roll the dice on this and, and see what happens. No, he listens to what God says, and in his heart, he knows that it will come to pass because of the nature and the character of the one who is saying it. That is what it means to have faith in God. It's a committed belief that he will do exactly what he says because of who he is. Faith is a difficult concept for us to understand sometimes, so let me illustrate it to you like this. How many of you thought about the chair that you're sitting in before you sat down? 
after Gatlin prayed? My guess is none of you. You probably didn't even think about it. You just turned around and sat down on autopilot, right? Why? Because you had faith that a chair is going to hold you up, right? And so you acted out of a belief that you didn't have to worry about sitting down or double-check to make sure that the legs were secure, which in here sometimes is kind of iffy, right? You didn't, you didn't check to make sure the legs were secure. You didn't question whether the chair really had your best interest in mind or whether you should take matters into your own hands and go outside and fashion a chair for yourself and bring it in here and then sit down in it. No, you just sat down. You said, this is what this is designed to do. It will hold me up. I don't even have to think about it. You had faith that the chair would do what it does. And so you trusted fully without even thinking about it. This act of faith, this act of complete trust by Abram in who God is, is the same thing. Going, I don't even have to think about this. You are who you are, and so I can trust you fully. There's no stress for me in this. I don't have to figure out the solution here. I don't have to worry about this. You will do what you say you will do, and I trust that. This act of faith is met with a response by God to declare him righteous or to justify him. We use those words in church a lot, worship songs. Those are kind of theological SAT words, right? We know they matter, but we don't fully grasp what they mean. And so let's try to bring it down to earth this morning and give some simple definition to what's happening here when it says that Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 3, tells us this. For what does Scripture say? Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. To be justified, to be declared righteous, meant that God looked at Abraham, Abram, and he looks at us in Christ and says, I will not condemn you for your sin. Past, present, future. Your sin will not be counted against you. They are all covered, every single one of them. The ones you overtly do and the ones that live in the deep, dark recesses of your mind. Does that mean that Abram would never sin again? Does it mean that we never sin again? Of course not. But it meant and means for us that God does not hold our sin against us and that he is now for us. That his mercy and his goodness and his blessings are poured out toward us and right relationship with God has been restored. That is justification. Listen, church, if there is one thing that is absolutely central to the Bible, one thing that is crystal clear from front to back, it is that because of our sin, the only way that we can be returned to a right relationship with God is through him declaring us justified in his sight. We can't do it on our own. We can't muster enough obedience, enough works, enough goodness to reconcile ourselves 
to God. We need God to provide the means of justification. And the means by which that exchange takes place is by faith in him. It's always been. It's always been. And that's the second point I want us to see today. God's plan has always been to justify his people through faith in him. This isn't just a New Testament concept, Christian concept. It wasn't the deeds of the people in the Old Testament that made them right with God. It was faith in the God who gave them the law to follow, believing that obedience to him was right and trusting that by doing what he called them to do, God would find a way to make them right with him. Romans 4 actually spells this out for us. I know we were just there. It shows us that even through the law, God's intention was to save and redeem his people through faith. Look at Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13 with me. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For, it, for if it is the adherents of the law who were to be heirs, faith is null and the promise void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, and in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, from front to back, the nature of God's plan to justify his people has been through faith in him. And so Abram went into this exchange with God, wanting confirmation for the promises that God made to him. And in doing so, he was not only given confirmation, but he was also given assurance of having right standing with God through faith in him. And yet, if you go back to Genesis 15, we're going to see as we read on in verse 8 that Abram still wants to know what remains for other parts of the promise as well. Now, this isn't a question born out of doubt. We've already established that. Abram's not doubting the Lord here. He's trusting and believing that God would do what he said he would do, but he desires to know by what means it will happen. So look at these verses with me, starting in verse 7. We'll see God's response to Abram's question concerning this part of the promise. It says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. 
And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So Abram asked this question, church. The Lord tells him to get these five animals. Five animals that the Israelites reading this narrative for the first time would understand are the same sacrificial animals that they are to use in keeping their covenant with God. And God instructs Abram to take these animals and to cut them in half and to basically create a pathway between these halves of these animals. This was a common process to ratify covenants in that day. You and the person that you were making an agreement with would set forth the terms. You'd establish a covenant. You'd cut these animals in half. It would make a uh, bloody mess, of course. And you would say, essentially, we're going to walk between these animals together such that if you or I were to break this covenant, may it be done to us what has been done to these animals. So, this is not weird. Abram's not sitting back and going, that's kind of weird, God. Now he would have understood that this is a normal part of making a covenant. But notice what happens here in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. You see, as the sun went down and the time to ratify the covenant had come, a darkness came upon Abram. And the Lord tells him of the troubles that will befall this offspring, this precious offspring that he's been longing for, that they would be enslaved for 400 years, but that their oppressors would be judged and they would come out with many possessions. We know that because of our understanding of the Bible, our study of the Bible, that this refers to the Israelites being in Egypt and the exodus that would follow. But notice how this covenant is confirmed. Instead of Abram walking through the pieces of the animals with the Lord, the Lord appears as a smoking firepot and a torch of light, and he goes through the pieces by himself. That's the Lord's way of saying, Abram, may all of the curse, may all of the penalty for me not fulfilling my promises to you come upon me and me alone. God is demonstrating to Abram that he would do what he said he would do and that he would fulfill his promises to Abram and his offspring. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Look, I don't know about you, but for me, I take great comfort in knowing that the Lord is not in the business of going back on the promises he makes to his people. That he's not in the business of going back on his word. I find great rest in knowing that from the beginning, God's plan has been to step in where there was no way and provide for us to meet us in the midst of our mess and lead us toward life to justify us, to cancel our debt, 
of our sin, on the basis of who he is and what Christ has done and not on our ability to be perfect. I take great comfort in knowing that both here for Abram and on the cross, God was willing to step in and take the curse and the penalty upon himself so that we could be benefactors of his promises, having done nothing to earn them. The covenant that God makes with Abram is a precursor for us of what was to come through Christ. The promises made and guaranteed to Abram and to his offspring, Galatians 3 says, were ultimately fulfilled in Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the offspring of Abram. He's the fulfillment of the promise that we would be justified by faith in God. Galatians 3, 8 through 9 says, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who have faith are blessed with Abram, the man of faith. So that, verse 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Therefore, verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's the final point and really the takeaway for you today, that Christ and faith in Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises. This whole thing that we've been looking at for the last few weeks that begin with God calling Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans to create a people for himself, a people whose sins would not be counted against them and who would operate by faith in the one who is both just and justifier. This thing that begin with God from the outside, from the outset, knowing the cost and, and being willing to pay the penalty for the curse himself, it finds itself complete at the feet of the cross with a Savior who gives us freely the riches of his inheritance through faith. Man, that's good news today. That's good news today. It's even better news because everything else around us in life can be so uncertain, but there is certainty and a guarantee of what lies ahead in Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection and the creation of a new covenant in his blood, just as there was for Abram here in this covenant. You know, I told you at the beginning about our vacation fiasco. <laughs> the truth is that while our original plans fell apart, they were replaced with something that was much, much better. We actually received a confirmation email this time as well. That was a bonus. I wonder this morning, as we come to this text, we see the nature of God. We see the way that he confirms his covenant with Abram. We see that he is trustworthy. I wonder this morning, <clears throat> how many of us need to recognize that the way that we're going about our spiritual lives is in need of having some plans fall apart so that they can be replaced by something better? you're playing the game of church attendance this morning or finding that what you're really trusting in is your ability to be good and try harder and do better instead of trusting in God himself, the fulfiller of promises, the justifier of the ungodly, then this morning I pray that you would see the word truth and turn to him. That you would come to him and recognize this morning that, that trust and faith in him is sufficient. Maybe you're just tired and jaded as a Christian and you've started well in your faith at one point, but now you've settled into habits that are outwardly righteous but inwardly faithless. Wherever you find yourself this morning, the best news of all is that if you are in Christ, your sin is forgiven, past, present, and future, and that the Lord intends to keep his promises to you and to me, to all who come to him by faith. He has ensured that to us through Christ, the great fulfiller of the promises with whom we are co-heirs. And so we can confidently move through life and approach God as Abram did, trusting in the goodness and the character of God who never fails us, 
and who will lead us toward forgiveness and restoration. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks this morning that you keep your word to us. May we rest fully and completely upon that today as we consider what it looks like to move through this life following and trusting Jesus, the great fulfiller of our promises. We thank you that you have stepped in and provided a way where there was not one and that you've ensured that you will keep that promise to us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We trust in in him fully today. We believe that promise. We pray these things for his honor and glory. Amen.